Hey everybody, this is Rob Ryersey. This is Vanessa Ryersey. And we are the hosts of the brand new Fundamorphosis podcast. Welcome aboard. Uh, we are thrilled to have you on this journey with us. We've got a great inaugural podcast for you today. In a few minutes, our first ever Fundamorphosis podcast guest will be joining us. And that guest is none other than our friend Mark Skinneret, and we're really excited about talking to him. As we get started, let me tell you a little bit about our vision for this podcast. Uh, back in November, my book, Fundamorphosis, was published, uh, and it's my story. It's uh, about how I went from being a, a dyed-in-the-wool fundamentalist to becoming a, a much different kind of Christian. Uh, it's about my journey and my transformation. That's what the book is about. Uh, the podcast is not about that. Uh, I wrote the book because I... I didn't think I was the only person to ever go through a, a theological transformation to have, um, to have my beliefs about God and the world and just about everything else evolve. Um, in fact, I know I'm not the only person who's ever gone through that. Yeah, I know that too. <laughs> yeah. So, um, unfortunately, uh, many churches are not safe places for theological transformation to take place. Christian culture... Um, is often very unkind to theological explorers. And so what we wanted to do was to develop a, uh, a safe place for people to ask questions, to doubt, to wonder, uh, to think. And we want to create a community that doesn't repress theological evolution, but rather celebrates it. And so that's what this podcast is all about. It's not about my story. It's about your story. It's not about what Vanessa and I have been through necessarily. It's about where you're at. And so what we want to do is, um, is create a forum in which people can talk openly about how they've changed and what they've wondered about. And, and they can do it without fear of being shunned or being separated from. So that's what we're going to try to do with this podcast. Here's our plan each week. Um, we're going to do kind of an opening segment where we're going to talk about uh, really whatever is of interest to us, whatever is on our mind. Uh, that might come from the world of politics or pop culture or television. Hopefully not. It, this won't turn into Downton Abbey talk. Uh, hey, yeah, you know, we'll talk about sports or church or, I mean, whatever, parenting, family, whatever we're thinking about and is on our mind, we're going to share it with you and, and talk to you about it. And so we kind of reserve the right to, uh, to talk about whatever we want. So we're going to do that. We're also each week going to transition into an interview. And what we want to do is uh, chat with some people about their theological transformations. We want to ask them questions and, and listen to their stories and, and to hear the stories of others. When we do that, when we hear the stories of others, um, our hope is that it will help us to understand our own stories a little better. And hopefully for some of you that are out there listening, um, maybe hearing the stories of others will give you some hope that you are not alone, that you're not the only person to have ever asked these questions. You're not the only person who have ever wondered about these things. And even if your church or your family is not a safe place to think about these things and to wonder these things, uh, maybe you can find some, some safe space here through the stories of others that we're going to talk to. Mark Scandrett today, 
and we've got some other great guests lined up that we're pretty excited about. We are then going to end each week with a feedback segment uh, where we'll respond to your questions and comments. We want you to be a part of the conversation and to uh, be a part of this. So if you have questions or comments or thoughts, uh, you can email us at fundamorphosis at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at fundamorphosis, or you can join the community on Facebook. It's uh, facebook.com slash fundamorphosis. You can ask questions or have comments or share your stories there. And our hope is to turn the Fundamorphosis page on Facebook into a community of people that are asking questions and are growing and developing that become theological explorers. So, all that being said, let's get to it. Since we have gotten started with a lot of me talking, uh, let's hear from Vanessa. We want to start by talking about... um, uh, Emergence Christianity, a national gathering that we attended in Memphis uh, a couple weeks ago that was uh, to celebrate Phyllis Tickle and her newest book. Uh, Vanessa, talk a little bit about that. Well, we signed up to go to the conference much earlier in the year. and When you said that you were going to go, I just felt like I wanted to tag along. And I had not read any of Phyllis's books and didn't really know very much about her, but I had heard a podcast um, from... Mars Hill, where I had heard her speaking, and I found her really interesting. Um, and I knew that you were interested in what she had to say, and so I thought, well, this will be a good opportunity for us to go do a pastor and pastor's wife kind of weekend. Um, and at the very least, get away from our kids for yeah. a few hours. <laughs> sure. Sure. So um, I didn't really have any, I didn't have any preconceived notions. Like, I didn't have any plans. I didn't know what I expected. Um I didn't know anything about Phyllis really all that much. Um, so so whatever she had to say, I was really open to it. Um, so what I found really, really fascinating was as um, the, the last of the four sessions closed and she works her way through the course of history, um, she gets down to where we're at now and she, um, she closed it off by talking about women being at home and... and and families looking at a much more um, do-it-yourself kind of approach to um, just about everything, but as a way of communicating our faith to our families. And there were quite a few people that, I don't know, for us, I found it really exciting. I don't know. Yeah, it was, what she said at the end of the conference was really, in a lot of ways, the most controversial thing that she said you know, throughout the whole thing. There was quite a reaction. What what Phyllis talked about was historically the development of the birth control pill um, gave uh, women the ability to um, control their cycles so that they, you know, didn't uh, get pregnant and they could even, you know, control their moods better so that they could eventually, you know, as she talked about, and again, this is Phyllis talking, not me, um, you know, they eventually could kind of... climbed the corporate ladder better than they could before, and that led to um, the, uh, you know, it more difficult for the transmission of faith to happen within the family unit, because now both mom and dad were working. Now, there were, in the room, a lot of feminists Mm -hmm. freaking out about what she said, And, and, and it was, I found that conversation very, very interesting, uh, because 
there was a lot of there was there's been and it's been interesting. There's been a lot of blog posts written about this. One of the thing that's in, one of the things that has interested me is reading blog posts of people, especially. I find interesting the blog posts of people that weren't there explaining what happened at the conference. Um, but anyways, um, but talking about how Phyllis blamed the fall of Christendom on the pill. I didn't hear that. I didn't either. What I heard was Phyllis was talking about, and she used an example from her own family, but she was talking about, what I heard was her talking about the, a rise in biblical illiteracy being connected uh, not so much to the pill, but being connected to families being so busy that there's not the opportunity to sit and talk anymore. Yeah, that's um, what I heard too. And so it, it was. So I found the discussion since really fascinating because it was. It, it's coming from a perspective that that I didn't share, but I'm very open to and very interested in hearing. Well, and I went. I went ahead and read several of the blog posts that were related to it, and they were women that were from a more feminist bent than I am. And, you know, I appreciated what they had to say. I think I could I could see where they would be upset. I mean, that made sense to me. But I feel like Phyllis was covering a lot of ground, and she was covering it very fast. She talks really fast, and she, I think she thinks really fast. Um, and so I think maybe, I don't know, I, I got to where she was going pretty easily, but it would have been nice if she could have filled in more and, and made that transition a, a little more, more gentle. And, and maybe um, and eased that that sense that she gave that that she was blaming, um, and you know it didn't help that she identified herself as not being a feminist, um, you know. And and what some of the other writers said was, "Hey, listen, if if you know your definition of our, you know our definition of feminism is that we think that women ought to be treated like people," and and I really do think you know that's obviously the case with Phyllis. Otherwise, she wouldn't be doing what she does. She thinks that that women are people. So, um, I, it was interesting to read about the controversy, and I and but I think the end result is the same: is that there there is, you know, there was a lack of, of biblical literacy, um, and maybe not for us fundamentalists growing up. So maybe we don't we didn't see it, but uh, you know, we got the Bible. Uh, jammed down our throats. Yeah, I was going to say that, but that didn't sound very nice. Yeah. Oh, that's what it was. We got the Bible jammed <laughs> down <much>. our throats. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, there's there's two things I want to ask you about, Vanessa. One is um, you made a comment to me, and hopefully you're willing to make this on the podcast, uh, but you made a comment to me that I found fascinating. I, like, I am always interested when there's, like, strong conventional wisdom that, that everybody's thinking one thing and has one opinion about something – I'm always curious about what the minority report is, of like what the contrary opinion is. And and so I'm reading all of these blog posts, and there is this, uh, there's kind of one thread of uh, of discussion that's going on, and, and you had a much different take on that. You said to me that the feminists who were tweeting, and, and whose tweets we could read during... Uh, Phyllis's comments, you said that they made you feel small, and Phyllis, in her comments, made you feel empowered. That's true. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I think, I think because, um, because I left the conference on a high. I left the conference, the last thing that I heard Phyllis saying was that this, um, 
you know, she mentioned Jerusalem Greer's book, um, which, which covers sort of the idea of, um, this, um, slow handmade, um, very organic kind of life where we try to incorporate the church calendar into our, into our daily lives and what we're doing with our families. And so like what we eat and how we shop and, and just like very natural things. And so, um, you know, that's, that's where I'm coming from. I've spent the last five years selling on Etsy and, you know, I've been a, I've been a vintage seller for over 10 years now. And, um, I've always, I've been at home. I've been at home for the last 14 years, um, out, you know, not with a job outside of the house. Um, and many of my friends are living this kind of life too, where we, we have our own little businesses. Uh, we, and some of them are big businesses, but I'm, I'm not, I mean, I have a friend who's, who's really successful and, and, you know, is able to, you know, care for her family with what she does, but, um, it, it's hers. And, and my business is mine, and it's, it's something that we manage from the venue of our home. And um, and we do that because we've made that choice, that, like, we could have had something outside of the home, but we chose to limit ourselves because we felt like it was important for us to be here for our for our kids and to run our homes and to, and to be here. And so um, then, you know, when I got home and I was so excited and then I started reading what the feminists had to say, I... You know, I, I felt bad because I, I recognized that, you know, women a generation ahead of me, two generations, three generations ahead of me, they had a hard time and they had a hard fight and they, they've had to scrap for everything that, they, that they've got. And, you know, I come up and it's easy for me because they've, they've blazed a, a path for me that if I choose to do the career path, I can, thanks to what they've done. But if I choose to stay home... I need some support in that too. Um, so I, I feel like maybe the pendulum is, is shifting and, and it, there's this idea maybe with, I know for me and I know for a lot of my friends that we want both. We, we're okay is with... Is both possible? Well, I, I think so, but it has to be with some limitations. I think, I think you have to decide like it's going to be, yeah, I, you're going to you're gonna have to have some limitations on both. You can have both, but you have to limit them. You can't have 100 percent of both. That's interesting. And so, um, you kind of touched on the second thing. You know, I, the first was kind of that reaction of you feeling empowered by what Phyllis said, and then I, like the upshot, like in the whole controversy, what's been missed is kind of the point of what Phyllis was saying. The point is that families, whatever families look like, whatever shape they take, it, you know, however, you know that whatever that looks like. Families, there there needs to be, and, and she talked about this progression from the tent to the the uh, to the the, the, tabernacle. the tabernacle to the temple, and so like in like in the tent in the home, there's got to be a creative way to engage all of us, not just our children, but all of us in in uh, in spiritual formation and telling finding ourselves in the biblical story, and and Phil's seem to be encouraging us to do that through the church calendar. And engaging with that, and so I, I, I found that very interesting. That like kind of in the midst of all of the controversy, her point that that families need to find a way, and it, it wasn't like a James Dobson James Dobson focus on the family kind of thing, but families somehow need to find a way to creatively 
in, uh, transmit the faith to their children uh, to keep it alive going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think um, I think two things. Um, I think we have stumbled into that those those ideas maybe by accident, but but definitely in a reaction to our our fundamentalist upbringing that. Um, Number one, there were criticisms that, well, you know, we're not all Anglican. Well, a lot of a lot of people, as part of emergence Christianity, are exploring the idea of the church calendar and liturgy and 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 that kind of approach um, because we didn't have it in fundamentalism. Yeah, it provides roots that. Um, yeah, we didn't have yeah, like yeah, the church calendar. I find that really fascinating, um, and it, it brings a richness mm-hmm. that we, that we didn't have. I think the other thing too is that. Um, in our in our understanding of faith now, we put a big emphasis on authenticity. So we don't just go to church and act like church people on Sunday, and then come home and do you know our regular life. We're trying to mold, like meld these two things into something much more whole. And so I think that it just makes sense that we would want this kind of um, all the time, like everyday life kind of approach that we're trying to convey our faith to our our families because of our authenticity. And maybe that's a little different than the way we were taught it. Yeah. So it's it's a really really interesting conversation and I'm and I've really enjoyed the conversation since the conference um learning hearing from others, hearing their perspectives, hearing, you know, the the different the, the folks with disabilities reacting to some of the things Phyllis said, women reacting to some of the things Phyllis said. Uh it's just it's been very, very interesting, and I've I, and I've I've enjoyed the conversation, and uh, and I'm really glad to kind of hear you weigh in on it too, because I think your voice in this is is an important one. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the other thing about it that that ended up being really interesting for me, and, and since I was going with no preconceived notions about it, I realized afterward that this is the first time that I've ever gone with you to a conference for church, you know, the, in that in that realm where I was treated like an equal. And I sort of no. You are not an equal. You are the pastor's wife. (laughs) It was so nice to be an equal participant that we didn't get shuffled off to hospitality class or how to put on a women's program or you know we weren't (laughs) how to how to lead the Christmas cantata. Yes, or put on a Christmas tea or you know we were um, slightly risque questions you can ask at a Valentine's banquet. Oh, man. Yeah, it was just, you know, I have a Bible degree, and I'm fascinated by these things, and I am equally as interested in them. Okay, I am fascinated by, like, possible topics for women's workshops at fundamentalist conferences. I'm thinking, like, uh, you know, in addition to the ones we've already mentioned, I'm thinking uh, uh, how to arrange uh, dried flowers for the Harvest Festival. Oh, now, now. You should really shouldn't I be telling you what these topics were? Well, yes, you're, you're going to think them up. You should. <laughs> no, I don't need to because girls that are listening to this, they already know. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So you found it interesting to be recognized as like as an equal, yeah, which was, is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Yeah, that was the first time in my life I've been in this setting and realized, oh, I matter just as much. What I have to say and how I think about this matters just as much. I'm not just this. Tag along. I'm an I'm an equal participant in this conversation. Yeah, 
That's awesome. Okay, so there are some of our thoughts about uh, EC13, Emergence Christianity, uh, with Phyllis Tickle. If you were at the conference or have thoughts about it, questions about it, uh, feel free to ask us on Facebook or shoot us an email at fundamorphosis at gmail.com, and we can get to those uh, in a later podcast. Uh, Next up, we're going to be talking to our friend Mark Scandrett. Okay, our, uh, our first guest on the Fundamorphosis podcast is our friend Mark Scandrett. Uh, Mark is the author of Practicing the Way of Jesus and uh, the Jesus Dojo, or Soul Graffiti. He is, uh, one of his websites is, is uh, the Jesus Dojo, markscandrett.com. He is the uh, director of Reimagine, a, uh, a really interesting community in San Francisco that we're I'm sure we'll talk about here in the next couple of minutes. Mark is a, a friend of ours, and we are thrilled that uh, that he is joining us on our our first ever Fundamorphosis podcast. So welcome, Mark. Hey, it's Yay. great to be with you guys. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, this is kind of cool because we Vanessa and I just a few minutes ago were talking about uh, Emergence Christianity 13 in Memphis and uh, some of our reactions to that and some of our reactions to the reactions to that. And uh, yeah. and so we had a chance to spend some time with you there and see you there, so it's fun to have a chance to, to talk again. Yeah, you guys are two of my favorite people. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, this, uh, this, this podcast is all about trying to create a space for people to feel comfortable and open about the theological and belief transformations that they're in the midst of. And so one of the things we wanted to do was talk to people who have gone through a, uh, a fundamorphosis of their own, so to speak, a, a significant change in how they view their faith, how, the, how they live it out, what they believe and how they believe. And, and Mark, you, you've gone through that a bit. So I'd love for us as we get started, maybe it's for you to tell us a bit of your own story of like what, like what kind of Christianity did you grow up in and, and, yeah. and how did that shape you? Mm-hmm. So uh, I grew up mostly in the Midwest of the United States. My parents are both from pietist traditions like um, Free Methodist, uh, Wesleyan, uh, part, part of that Wesley, Wesley movement. But, and, um, but, uh, but as I was growing up, because it was a military family, we traveled around to different regions. And so I would call my parents um, free-range evangelicals. So we would just find like-minded people wherever we lived. And they weren't as particular about the labels of what denominations, but definitely there was a, um, a worldview that was probably consistent between um, many of those groups. So um, probably the two the two influences that most shaped me um, as a kid was uh, aside from my family experience, uh, my church experiences were um, that I was part of a Lutheran church growing up that uh, that was um, Bible based evangelical in its orientation, and then also as a teenager. I got involved with a group called Child Evangelism Fellowship, and we did uh-huh. backyard Bible clubs. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so I spent the years between 13 and 16 um, preaching the gospel every summer 
Um, someone would pick me up at 7 a.m. in the morning, and we would do four or five backyard Bible clubs each day, uh, five days a week. And so by the time I was 15, I'd literally preached the gospel as I was taught to, to thousands and thousands of kids across um, Minnesota. <laughs> and um, with both of those experiences, oh, oh and I should say this, is, this all occurred in the um, early to mid-1980s, so it's the time of the moral majority and um, the, probably the height of uh, focus on the family's influence. And my and um, my parents were influenced by both of those movements as well as um, we were also a Gothard family. Uh, oh wow! My dad, yeah. My dad, my dad had gone to institute in um, basic youth conflicts, and then a year or two later took me along. And I was a um, I was an avid fan of all of those things that I participated in: um, child evangelism fellowship. Um, my Lutheran church and its uh, Lutheran doctrine and the catechism, as well as um, a big listener to Focus on the Family. And um, I really, I really grabbed on to the Phil Gothard uh, material and spoke uh, to that. And it, it gave my dad and I a lot in common um, to talk about. The thing that I, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, and you eventually, um, you eventually ended up um, on staff with Child Evangelism Fellowship, right? Yeah. And did you yeah. end up? Did you end up pastoring a church too in in, well, so, in Minnesota? So, yeah. So, so three things. Um, I I served as a youth pastor in my uh, early twenties at um, at my home church that I grew up in, a Lutheran church, like a conservative Lutheran church, and then. I eventually became uh, a regional director for Child Evangelism Fellowship as well. So I kept up the, you know, I kept up those attachments all the way through college and into my um, into my mid twenties. Yeah. And you you eventually, you know, pretty significantly kind of moved away from that to where you're at now. What were, were there some some precipitating moments, some things that, uh, you know, that, that I, I call them in my book milestones yeah. in redemptive history, those things that you kind of look back and say, this was something that really significantly changed the way I I, I think and, and changed the trajectory of my life. Yeah. I had a fundamorphosis. That's awesome. <laughs> um, so there's a couple different streams of it. Um, one was when um, the way I was trained to share the gospel um, had a very, it, it was a very particular way, and it primarily addressed the belief system of the person. Um, I was inviting kids to believe certain things about God and Jesus and the significance of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and um, getting people to say a, a rote prayer. And that became troublesome to me because, uh, first of all, I didn't see that in the New Testament. Um, and second, it seemed like coming into relationship with God had to do not just with my ideas about God, but also my, the rest of my person, my, my um, 
feelings, my body, my will, and um, that I could see over and over. I knew how to sell kids on saying that they believed the, the things that I was telling them, but it seemed like for transformation to really happen in a person's life, it needed to go further. And yeah. um, and that it wasn't, and the gospel that I preached was primarily about the future, what happens when you die. And that's how I was first exposed to the message of Jesus. Uh, in my first book, Soul Graffiti, I, I spent, spilled some ink on this, saying how I had a strange relationship with the gospel in that uh, when I was three years old, I heard uh, a preacher on the radio uh, tell me that I was doomed to destruction, and I was terrified. And so I asked, asked my parents, uh, what do I need to do? And they were really excited to tell me that even though I was you know, doomed to spend eternity apart from God, Jesus had made a way for me to, um, through his sacrifice, for me to... Um, to go to heaven someday. So when I look back now, I think, I just remember even at the time thinking, who is God that God wants to send three-year-olds to hell? And, <laughs> and I'm not sure developmentally that was what I needed to hear about God. And um, it, it maybe got me scared enough to pray a prayer that my parents told me to pray. But it didn't, Help me! It didn't help me want to engage with the Creator, or to be curious at all anymore. I was sort of like I'd done my business with God, and God seems like a scary being who wants to send me to hell. Uh, so I, I guess I got that taken care of, and I can go on to just being a kid. Yeah. And so I, yeah. I feel like I had to, um, as a teenager, recover from that, and realize that. Um, Actually, the gospel is a lot more than just where you go when you die. And that the first, the first note of the song is um, the creator's love for us, not a threat of destruction. And so fear, I just don't think fear is a particular, fear of punishment is not the best motivator. It might help a person wake somebody up, but it's not going to them to really engage in a, in a greater life of faith. Yeah, um, yeah and, and you know, it's it, hearing you, you talk about that, you know, it, it's so interesting. I, I don't, I don't mean to keep going back to my book Fundamorphosis, but I like I've got a whole chapter about like this idea that like the church so often treats the gospel like a like a chick flick. That like the point is like that like in a chick flick, there's all this conflict and all this drama. And like in a romantic comedy, until you get to the point where like there's the big kiss or that they say I do, and then the credits roll and it's over. And and it's mm-hmm. like there's all this work to get people to the point of praying that prayer and saying I do to God, and then it's over. When in fact that's mm-hmm. just the beginning. Yeah. That's you know it's it's just the beginning of of a whole what should be a whole new life. Yeah. And literally in the work that I did as an evangelist. We weren't very concerned about what happened after the kids said that prayer. We'd yeah. sort of give them a couple of tips, say, pray, read the Bible, and go to a church. But um, some of the kids that I was working with, especially when I went on staff as a director, 
we started working with kids in low-income housing projects just after the mines shut down in um, northern Minnesota. So it was about 85% unemployment. There was a lot of um, struggles in the, in the lives of families in that region. And I would share that gospel that I had learned to share, and it seemed kind of hollow when um, I'm talking to kids who really need uh, a big brother, a big sister, parent figure, someone to walk with them, someone to care for them, someone to protect them sometimes from people in their lives who were neglecting or abusing them. <clears throat> and I just thought it seems like following the way of Jesus is more than just getting people to say this prayer. These kids need the power of the gospel in uh, to show up in manifest in real loving relationships in their lives. Mm-hmm. And that um, being being formed by that good news is a lifelong process. So I started emphasizing in the way that I would share um, more of my emerging understanding that we're invited into relationship with our Creator and that that happens through the work of Jesus um, but that, uh, to, to and that we get to be a part of, um, you know, seeing creation healed and um, and experiencing healing and greater wholeness in our lives. So that didn't that didn't quite nail it down to getting kids to do do this one thing that we could measure. But I hope I hope that it introduced some kids to um, to a lifelong relationship with that. Now, as your as your understanding of the gospel was changing, and then your approach to how you were doing your ministry with Child Evangelism Fellowship changed as a result of that. Did that put you at odds with CEF leadership? I mean, did you catch any flack for that? I mean, what kind yeah. of reaction? Well, I don't want to. I don't want to be too negative about the organization because the people. Oh, absolutely. Are Understand. Very sincere. Very sincere people. Who uh-huh. really did want to care and believe that the best way to care about children is to prepare them um, for eternity. Um, sure. And I just tended to say, I want to prepare kids for now, to um, for life, life in the here and now. Um, it was we, we were driven a, somewhat by numbers, so talk to more kids, help get more people to make decisions. And so I shifted my emphasis towards working with fewer kids but on a deeper level of mentoring and discipleship and uh, getting to know their families and kind of and trying to care for and support these family systems. And I, so I think there was a bit of a bit of tension there because of that. Yeah. How did you end up in San Francisco then? What, yeah. what took you okay. from, from Minnesota <laughs> to San Francisco? Because that's okay. a to move. Right. Okay, so um, I feel like I went through a series of six or eight conversions from the time I was three to the time I was 23. And, huh. um, yeah, I named the first one. It was my conversion to Jesus as Savior. Uh, the next was when I was 12, a conversion to um, relationship with God being the organizing principle of my understanding of spirituality. And then <clears throat> I was a pretty intellectual, artistic kid, and um, I went to an, a, 
Uh, most people had been raised by hippie parents, and I was raised by in a military family um, in a pretty in a in the subculture of the church. So I didn't listen to I didn't I I didn't listen to rock and roll music. I I even um, after going to Bill Gothard, I burned all my Christian cassettes as well. <laughs> Christian rock cassettes. Um, we didn't. We're have, laughing because we've done that too. We've been there. We didn't, yep. we, we didn't have books in our house that weren't published by a, a religious publishing house. So there was a a very it was a kind of a small world. We got most of our information about the world through Christian radio, uh-huh. and um, I was a de- default kind of supporter of. Uh, uh, a certain political party because that's how most people I grew up with voted and um, the organizations that we were connected with voted that way. We got lots of newsletters at our house about how America was being taken over by secular humanism and um, the gays and lesbians and um, and the liberals. So a lot of fear. And so, But I go to school every day with the children of the 1960s, and these—they've been raised very different than me. They've been raised with a hostility towards and a skepticism about uh, Christianity, and uh, most of my instructors were like that. So I had to find a way to, um, if I could, preserve my faith, but exist in this other world, and. <clears throat> Um, so the work of Francis Schaeffer uh, was really important to me because he talked in categories that made sense to me about science, ecology, philosophy, um, visual arts, music, and, and the general culture. So I felt like I could, that was a bridge for me to be, become conversant in this uh, world that I was in. So um, I could talk about epistemology and metaphysics and presuppositions with my friends at school and kind of try and um, translate my, my faith in a way for myself and for my peers that makes sense to me. Um, but that opened me up to, uh, I think, a lot more influences. Um, and then working in housing projects as a, as a early 20-something and seeing that the world wasn't as black and white as we made it that a lot of the solutions um, to problems that I'd heard that were frankly pat answers um, uh, didn't work for people who had experienced extreme poverty and abuse and dysfunction in their lives and that mostly what I had was a theoretical faith that worked probably only and maybe it didn't really even work there, but we sort of thought it worked in this protective envir- environment of precious moments, figurines, and um, worship music 24-7 on the radio. But I was encountering all of these situations where life had been really hard for people, and they needed they needed a God, not just a God, a, a, a good theory about God, but a loving presence in their lives. And that really tur- helped me turn the corner to say, I want a spirituality that isn't just about knowledge of the Bible, agreement with correct doctrine, 
and certain rituals of prayer, Bible study, and church participation. But I, I, I want a, um, a spirituality that actually works to address the deeper wounds and struggles that I have and the people that I work with have. Um, so the big shift was was towards experience and also towards action and practice being important to spiritual development. So, so and Vanessa, I've been asking all the questions here. You feel free to jump in if you know if, if you want. Uh, so you, you you move you move your family you move your family to San Francisco and 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 start reimagine. Tell us about about reimagine. Right. Well, I would say let me first say um, my my uh, despite my problems with organized religion, um, what I saw in my family were very sincere people um, who were open to learning. Um, I grew up in an urban area. Um, we, we, my, I saw my parents really care about their friends and neighbors and uh, offer a lot of compassion. I never heard my parents. My parents weren't particularly political people, so there wasn't a lot of rhetoric about that in my home. I never heard my parents say anything negative about particular um, minority groups, ethnicities, or um, sexual orientations, they, they're deeply sincere people. And so even though our culture tends to be fear-based and negative, I, I saw a spark of light from uh, what I saw my parents, and that's really what allowed me, I believe, to keep, uh, keep a hold of my Christian faith, even though I was very embarrassed by how we showed up in public and um, as a tradition. And... Um, many of my intellectual uh, kind of struggles. So um, so we, we were slowly shifting. Like it wasn't, it wasn't, um, it, I think from the time I was about 14 all the way to 24, 26, there were these gradual little steps. And when I look back now, I, w- I wish someone had told me, rethinking your understanding of Faith and spirituality is a normal process, and um, every human being goes through this. Um, you get your your spiritual journey starts in a certain tradition among certain people, and then based on your personality, life experience, and the time we live in, you navigate that. And most of us have to question some of the things that we thought in practice, and try on some new things because we are in the process of um, understanding. And it's, it's spiritual puberty. We all go through mm-hmm. spiritual puberty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it has these seasons of naivete and then seasons of doubt and questioning. So what really helped me is that when I came to these obstacles, uh, particularly my father, I could say, Dad, why do we do it this way? Why do churches meet in buildings? Why do we believe this way? Uh, why don't why don't most people that I see at our church actually take Jesus seriously as a teacher and how they live their lives? Um, and my dad was very patient with me to say, you know, you make a good point there, or have you thought of this? Or um, So that gave me a, a – that really helped me. I think if my dad had come down on me and said, no, you need to think about it and see it for um, 
even things that I really embrace, like I love the praxis aspect of um, of Bill Gothard's material. Um, we could also say, hey, but this it's taken the wrong way and it becomes legalistic. And that was very helpful for me that we could observe ourselves and critique ourselves a bit and not have to defend everything that we as a family or faith tradition said and did. So by the time I got to my mid-20s, I was like, I want to have a journey in the way of Jesus that can be conversant with what's happening in the late 20th, early 21st century. I don't want to have a faith that only can only exist in a bubble or in a subculture. And so we had this vision of moving to San Francisco outside of a, a um, Christian culture and see if we could find uh, a way of, of reading the gospel and following Jesus that would make sense to us in in that new environment of a post-Christendom concept. Mm-hmm. So it, it kind of started with you and your, your immediate family, and then you invited others to be a part of it. Like, what what does that look like? What what shape does it take? I mean, in, 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 I'm sure in, you know, in the number of years that Reimagined's been been around, yeah. that, that's kind of been reinvented a few times, I think. But, but what does that look like for you guys? Yeah, we, we, we didn't realize how much more we had to learn once we got to San Francisco. Learn or unlearn. <laughs> and so there's a, there's a few rocky years where I, I think I was shaken a bit more in some of my suppositions. And, um, so what we started doing was saying, let's, let's read the, particularly the Gospels and read the cultural context we're in and listen to both and do what makes sense based on what we're hearing. And so um, we would just start doing little experiments. Uh, an idea would pop into our heads. Hey, um, Jesus seemed to pay particular attention to people who were outsiders. Who were who the outsiders uh, oh, far from the church and um, and sort of blacklisted in the general culture, we should be connecting with folks like that. And so we made intentional efforts as a family and um, as a group of friends to take steps um, with whatever whatever seemed to be that burning ache or question. Nice. And and the experiments began. And it really kind of became, you know, the means by which you now do spiritual yeah. formation that you kind of do, you know, the the Christian life of living out the things that, that Jesus said. You've become a uh, an evangelist of, of, of praxis, of of, of yeah. living, of rather than an evangelist trying to convert people to like eternity, you're you're now trying to convert people to live here and now more fully yeah. in the way of Jesus. I mean, I feel like I'm in the process of being converted. Um, I've lived much of my life uh, in the shadows, um, in fear, worry, lust, jealousy, um, and that that I'm being invited into the light of God's kingdom. So what we try and do is hold out that vision of life to one another, um, that 
we were created for a relationship with our maker, for a deep sense of core identity, to be part of healing and restoration in this world, to live a life of gratitude and contentment and generosity, to discover ways to live in reconciled relationships with one another, um, to experience healing from our wounds and struggles and peace and suffering. And so with that vision of what I would describe as life in the kingdom in mind, we, we ask each other, what's a step that we can do in our minds and bodies that will help us experience that reality? And so we, from that, we come up with an experiment that will last from usually seven days to 40 days or so, six weeks. Um, what it, you know, if there's some, you know, somebody listening to this podcast right now that is the, the, the old approach of, you know, it's all about getting your get out of hell free card and then, you know, loading up on Bible knowledge and then feeling guilty that you're not praying enough. Like that, that's like the whole approach to the Christian life. And that's um, yeah. a little bit being a little caricaturing just a little bit there, but not much. But, the, you know, I'm sure there's somebody listening who is like, that is no longer resonating with them. And that's the yeah. approach that they hear on Sunday. That's, you know, what they've always known. I mean, what what would you want to tell them about uh, about how it could be different? Yeah. First of all, I'd say that I tried that, you know. <laughs> like, like um, I as a teenager spent two or three hours a day reading the Bible. I memorized verses, chapters, and books. Like it was very important to me. I, I tried to live a life of holiness, which I think I had a very limited understanding of what that would be. So hence I basically spent all my time either witnessing, studying the Bible and secretly masturbating. But the, um, <laughs> the, uh, but I, but I think I think I needed to learn that I I'm an embodied being, and that um, you know true spirituality is about um, seeing the sacred in all of life, um, embracing all things with thanks. Um, I uh, so for the person who's who says, I've gone down that road, I, I don't think it's working. I, I think the, the big shift is to say, well, what, what in all of that knowledge that you got, what was, what were the, what, in, that, in, that big, in that story, what were the things that you saw people experiencing? What, what if the scriptures are um, the story that we get to be a part of, that uh, an ongoing story, and that we could have encounters with the divine being in way in the, in similar ways to um, the folks in those stories. We could learn to take new risks uh, in the same ways that we saw those people doing it. So just shifting to, I don't uh, from I need to know this to I want to experience the reality of this in my everyday life. Um, that, that's that's huge. And then try something. You know, what, what makes sense to you? Uh, what would be a next step towards that? 
Um, en- engaging. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. What's, go ahead. Yeah, what's that thing that you're really intrigued by and terrified of? Do that. Mm-hmm. You know, like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and honestly, um, I really think that most people are, would be open to taking that step of risk and action if they're invited or or someone, you know, like I've traveled all across the country and when I say um, that the, when I post the um, the question, why, why don't we just look at what Jesus did and taught and try to do those things? Most people are like, yeah, duh, that totally makes sense. So it's obvious to us, we just need to have the courage to risk something, to try, try something new. Um, and, you, you know, this is a bit cliche, but insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. So if we don't like what the result, then we're going to have to try something new. And I think there's some trial and error to this. I would say there were some themes for me in what helped me. Um, intentional engagement with people in the struggle of poverty and anguish and suffering um, has been helped me get out of, outside of myself and um, and I really sense God's uh, presence and love welling up in me that I was faced with impossible situations and total ignorance about how I could care or be a loving presence in somebody's life. Um, a second one has been um, silence and solitude and contemplative prayer to allow myself the space to not just have thoughts about God, but um, in, in God we live and move and have our being. So there there's a way for us to experience the God who's closer than our breath at this moment. And then a, a third big one would be um, uh, taking steps into authentic community. So one of the great gifts to me in my early 20s was finding friends that I could be completely honest with, that I could share what my real temptations, wounds, and struggles were with, um, that I could share what my doubts were with, and um, be heard and understood and supported. And also um, an environment where people could call me on my stuff and say, you know, um, it sounds like you were pretty hard on your wife there <laughs> in the way you just told me what you said to her yesterday. Or have you thought about this? And and having people not, uh, not give me rote, at solutions to things, but actually, actually, you know, hear what the struggles in my life are and try, you know, invite them to speak, speak into it, reflect back to me what I'm putting out there. Mm-hmm. Yep. I have two more questions for you, but I have asked all the questions so far. Uh, <laughs> Vanessa, <laughs> jump in anytime. So, so now we're going to get some good right. questions. I've been, I've from just Vanessa. enjoying listening, so it's okay. <laughs> all right, just go ahead. Um, no, I actually like I, I find myself wondering, um, you know, there are there are people who are wired to 
look at a situation, look at a, look at a series of things and say this isn't working and I'm willing to step away and start from scratch and do something completely different. Um, and, and you and Rob both have that personality. And then there are people that are a lot more timid and don't know how to um, pull back and say, you know, I can I can live without my Gosher's principles. I can live without, you know, um, what gives you, you know, I guess, I mean, it doesn't change all at once, but, you know, what gives you the confidence to say, yeah, I'm just going to do it completely differently. Like everybody else is doing church this one way, and yeah. I'm going to pull back and do something completely different. Um, I, I, that's a huge question, but I, I do find myself wondering that all the time. Is, is what makes somebody, is is that just your personality, the way God made you, or is, is there something, I don't know, it's a really big question, so it's what I wonder. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to think it comes from a hunger. I, I also think um, as, um, I, I don't want to make a blanket statement about what men are like or what women are like, but I think that um, for me, my experience of being a man is that I I have a lot of thoughts, and those thoughts are often disconnected from how I actually live my life, and I sort of obsess about those ideas, theology, etc. Um, and so for for my wife Lisa this transition was softer, probably more organic, um, and less wordy than mine was. I I read hundreds of books and went to lots of uh, conversational events and had lots of online discussion. And for her, when it it wasn't working anymore, she just thought she quietly tried a few different things in her everyday life. So I, I don't I don't think the transition is the same for every uh, person. Some people really need to wrestle with ideas, and other people maybe know better how to just uh, grow towards lean into a few things differently. Um, I'd also say it was a real gift to us to move to San Francisco uh, to a place that where most people weren't familiar with uh, Christian faith uh-huh. so that we could kind of turn down the volume on the chatter of Christian culture uh-huh. um, because that occupies, uh, I realized when I go back to where I grew up how everyone is talking about um, what what John Piper just said or um, what do we think of Rob Bell's new book or um things like that, and I never run into anybody who's in- interested in talking about that stuff, but we need to know who those people are. Uh-huh. And, yeah. so it, and so I've encouraged people to maybe, it, and it, wherever you live, if you feel like you're wanting to cut a new groove, somehow find a way to turn down the volume. Don't, don't listen to Christian radio for a while. Uh, some, sometimes we um, we have a fatal attraction to the things that offend us, you know. And so, <laughs> when when there's a public Christian personality that really annoys us, we're totally tuned into them and follow them on Twitter and stuff. I don't think that's particularly helpful, and um, and it it occupies the mind space 
and the relationship space in a way that tends to be negative. And yeah. I, I know that I want to spend my energy moving forward and uh, rather than preoccupied with what I'm hoping to leave behind. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and this I isn't this isn't yeah, this isn't always the easiest thing to do and I think I went through a rocky time with it, but um, Richard Rohr calls it tr- to transcend and include. So as I look back, what I'm trying to do now is value whatever good that I experienced in um, communities and faith traditions that I might not feel as much res- resonance with now. Right. Um, and and um, things I experienced in my family ways that people tried to care about me in well-meaning ways that might be a little bit misguided. Um, and this is one of those things that, that I'm constantly reminded of is the, 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 the church as I experienced it growing up doesn't exist anymore. Like in some ways I have, I have PTSD and I'm putting on groups now what was really happening in the 80s. And if we have enough, if we have faith that God is at work in the world, then um, in every corner of of Christian tradition, there is this ache to live in the fullness of the gospel. And so I see, uh, I travel across very diverse groups in my um, teaching and and training from Adventists and uh, Assembly of God to UCC and Episcopal and everything in between, uh, sometimes in one week. And <laughs> in, I, see, I see good movement happening in all those places. And I think I've been, um, I'm, I'm learning I need to get over my, um, my prejudices and my labeling, because I'm most of the time I find out that um, that persona I developed about a certain person in their brand isn't true, isn't completely yeah. doesn't say, doesn't speak the whole truth about who they are or the questions they're asking. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's very really true. Yeah. Okay, we've talked for a while. Let me let me ask you two final questions. Number one, tell us about your new book that's coming out. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I got to um, write this one with my wife, Lisa. It's called Three, Spending Your Time and Money on What Matters Most. And we're super passionate about this topic. We're trying to, uh, with this book, try to address um, the challenges of sort of financial sustainability, global and ecological sustainability, and um, our quest for meaning and purpose. And so... Um, That's a pretty small topic. Yeah. <laughs> it's, and, Not and because, at all. And yeah, you just want to change the world. That's it. Yeah. And because it's <laughs> us, it's super practical. So there's seven steps we want people to take to be free. Um, and uh, I, what, what I see going on is a lot of people feeling stuck in a particular lifestyle, um, a certain amount of debts or a career that they would really like to change, 
as their imagination grows for life in the kingdom of God. And I think there's some super, there's both some in, inward journey practices that can help free a person up, like learning to live gratefully, generously, and with, with trust and contentment. And then there's some real-life practical competencies that a person needs, um, identifying what your values are and um, what, what your priorities are, managing your time, creating a spending plan, um, and taking, taking care of business. So, mm-hmm. so um, that's what we hope to do with this book that we hope that groups, groups of people could use. Like, it would be great to have an um, experimental collective group go through. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, when did it come out? It'll come out in August. I'm finishing up copy edit reviews right now. And we will be shooting eight videos uh, in a couple of weeks that will go along with it. So it's super-duper designed to be used with small groups. Great. Great. One last question for you. This, what we're trying to do is create a safe space for people to, to explore theologically and to say that it's okay to develop, it's okay to change, it's okay to evolve, that our faith isn't something that is set it doesn't have to be settled and delivered to us. We can be, um, in Clark Pinnock's words, theological explorers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you, um, you know, you you have explained to us some some of the ways you've evolved and developed. Um, any sense of what's on the horizon for you? Anything that you're thinking about now that's captured your imagination? Any any ways in which you are in the midst of changing currently? Ah, fascinating. Wow. Um, yeah, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, and, it, and, and, and you don't have to give us a complete answer because, like, yeah. these things, you know, it, it can just be a, maybe a snapshot of what's on your mind now, maybe a question that you're pondering that you don't know yet, you don't know the answer to quite yet. Yeah. Um, I mean, one thing that is animating to me is, and this might be a little bit esoteric, but I really think we're in the midst of a major shift in human consciousness where the the ways that we could see the world when we were less connected, um, uh, they, things necessarily have to change in, in how we see the world based, based on... Um, you know, technology and the, you know, just the uh, J-curve of exponential curve of information that we have. And so I'm, I'm wondering what, how that impacts how we see um, Christian faith and spirituality. Um, and, yeah, so that's, that's a big one for me. But probably the... Probably on a and what I, I describe as like an emerging ecological consciousness that we are seeing the connections between things, body, mind, spirit, and our connections between one another. What I what I choose to do, how I choose to spend, affects not just me but uh, people on the other side of the planet. And this brings up a lot of new questions about what faithfulness to the way of Jesus might mean. 
um, in our town. Uh, but the probably the the deeper thing for me is that um, I I feel like after all these years of leading and taking risks to do experiments, more and more um, I I long to deepen my my own practice and to to experience transformation at a at a soul level um, to actually become. Uh, not just a person who thinks interesting ideas, but actually lives life in conscious awareness of my creator and empowered to to love. And so um, after we saw each other in um, Memphis, and I went to the um, hotel, Lorraine Hotel, where Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, uh, I've, I've wondered... Um, what kind of vision a person needs to go? What what is the biggest ache in my in my world right now that would cost me the most if I took the risk to really love? That, that might cost me my life. And I think the most um, the people have been the most tapped into the reality of the gospel throughout the ages have asked that question and figured out ways to act. Um, counterculturally. Yeah, that's fantastic. Wonderful. Mark, thank you so much. We uh, really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us, and uh, and we love you, and uh, we have, as I've said before, we have drunk the Mark Scandrette Kool-Aid, and, uh, and, and it is good and tasty. So thank you so much. We, uh, we appreciate uh, you taking this time and sharing your story with us. Thanks, Mark. Right on. Great to talk. Bye. Love you guys. Okay, we want to now move into the feedback segment of the podcast. This is your chance to participate in the conversation and to uh, to share with us what your thoughts are, your comments, your questions. You can do that by sending an email to fundamorphosis at gmail.com. You can also tweet at us at fundamorphosis, or you can join the, uh, the Facebook community. It's facebook.com slash fundamorphosis, and there... You can share your story, ask your questions, give your comments. Our hope is that that turns into a, a real safe place for people to talk and to, to grow and to think together. So we've got some questions um, to get us started this first week. And uh, our first question comes from an emailer named Cindy. She says, so what's your take on women preaching? I recently went to church with my parents and listened to the preacher talk about spiritual gifts he read the passage about pastors being the husband of one wife, and he said that, the woman should, that women should realize that being a pastor would not be their gift because God didn't intend for them to be preachers. If he had, he would have used different wording in the verse. Okay. Um, and then she go, goes on to kind of talk a bit about um, the biblical example of Deborah and trying to kind of square that away with what that pastor was saying. Um, there's there's a lot of different ways to go with a question like this. Uh, I mean, my initial reaction, and and those of you that are a part of Vintage Fellowship, our our community, know that like the phrase spiritual gifts um, really grates on me. Um, I wrote a little ebook called "I Don't Believe in Spiritual Gifts: A Minor Heresy." Uh, I think it's 99 cents on Amazon. I would encourage everybody to 
go buy it and buy lots of copies of it and give it away to everyone you know. <laughs> no, is that not okay for me to say? <laughs> uh, but it's, uh, it's, I think some of this gets gets fixed, some of this problem that this pastor has um, in kind of equivocating terminology and whatnot gets fixed when uh, you pay a little bit more careful attention to what the Bible actually says about quote-unquote giftedness. Um, and I'll kind of leave that aside, and maybe if you want more information on that, we can talk about it in another podcast if you ask questions about it. Uh, the bigger question here has to do with the role of women in the church, uh-huh. and that's that's a big question. That's that's something that in our own fundamorphosis, our own leaving fundamentalism and starting Vintage Fellowship, that we um, that we very consciously and intentionally set forth an egalitarian approach to how we do things at Vintage. Uh, Which is probably, it's probably been um, really different for a lot of people that attend Vintage. And also, I mean, for me too, but with a lot of people um, at Vintage, they come from a Church of Christ background where women aren't allowed to do anything, not even lead music. Which, I mean, at least in our, you know, GRBC background, you know, a woman could maybe lead a choir, maybe. Yeah, as a choir director, yes, but could not like lead the congregation in singing, holding the hymnal. Oh, and no, no, waving no. their arms around yes, for they, no. Re- Why do they do that? I don't know. But, well, because it helps you stay in rhythm. Rhythm? What? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> so, anyways, um, yeah. So we were very intentional at kind of breaking away from what we had grown up with, where uh, women had no role in leadership. Um, no, no official role in leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, no ability to teach or preach uh, in in mixed company, mm-hmm. uh, and we were very intentional about that uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, one, because uh, we tend to think that you know when Paul says in Christ uh, there's not male or female, that he is kind of inaugurating a whole new approach to gender and identity. Uh, that is uh, that's tremendously important for what the kingdom ought to look like and what the church ought to be like. But what about that verse that says, he says, I don't allow a woman to have authority over a man. I don't allow a woman to speak or, you know, what are you going to do with that? Well, you're not allowed to ask that question because you're not allowed to speak. Yes, I understand. But you, you should answer it anyway. Well, it's a difficult question. Um, if If we are simply reading the Bible in like a one-dimensional kind of literalistic kind of way and not appreciating the fact that Paul is writing in a particular context, in a particular culture, to a particular group of people that had their own issues, their own problems, and what is true in one congregation is not true necessarily in another congregation. So, for instance, when Paul has a situation where... um, he is trying to minister to Jewish people. Uh, he has... Um, oh, I'm going to get them mixed up now. Titus and Timothy. Uh, I'm going to just take a stabbing guess here, rather than pausing the podcast and, and looking this up. Uh, he does not... When he's ministering in a very strong Jewish context, he requires that Timothy be circumcised so that he can help him and serve alongside him. Mm-hmm. There's another instance where Paul refuses to let Titus get circumcised. And because different cultural contexts require different things in their leadership and in their structure, it's not a one-dimensional, black-and-white, one-size-fits-all kind of approach. 
And so I think, you know, is Paul, what is true in one context where Paul is giving a church some encouragement about how to handle a particular issue in their congregation, that does not mean, that's a much different kind of statement than a, than a much broader, uh, general, I almost want to say universal, but that kind of scares me, that word, uh, a much broader statement like in Christ there is not male or female that is a much broaderly much more broadly applied uh, statement in the scriptures does that make sense yeah that makes sense well I mean what that means is that you have to uh, you have to wrestle with it on your own there's not just one simple answer and that um, you know we're not all he's not shooting for uniformity like we were taught like there's like this, you know, there's black and white roles for everybody. And, and, and that idea allows for people to explore their faith and be on their own faith journey and come to their own conclusions about what, what is, what they really believe and what really works in, in our culture. So for instance, we don't cover our heads anymore, but Amish women do and Mennonite women do. So, yeah, and and the even even the women who would quote a passage like fundamentalist women who would quote a passage like like that from Paul. I mean, like the rest of the the passage goes on to talk about not braiding your hair, not wearing gold jewelry, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Like, what about all that stuff? Well, I think it has a lot to do with maybe the idea of modesty. Like, you know, we you know that was another idea that was jammed down our throats in fundamentalism. But you know, modesty has changed. We, um, you know, there was a time in, in history where it was considerably, it was considered, you know, absolutely, you know, so horribly immodest if you went out without 14 petticoats. And now we, you know, we don't wear slips. Now I don't even know what a petticoat is. So, so modesty changes. And so maybe the role of women, um, has some, has some room for, for, for growth. (laughs) Maybe that's the best way to say it. Very clearly, you were on the slippery slope to apostasy. Clearly. Now, go make me a sandwich. No, I'm joking. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. As far as... Good luck with that. As far as the question goes, I mean, our approach... I mean, this is just speaking for us. Like, I mean, we take a very egalitarian approach at Vintage and, and, and now see that, like, women have full... That women are full and equal partners in the life of the community and... And really see that it's a shame that, like, it's any other way, any other place. Um, The voice and perspective and and, and cares and concerns of of women needs to be brought out in the midst of the community. And that often happens through, you know, preaching and teaching and, and leading and... And vintage, our community would not be the community it is without the wonderfully strong and wise leadership it gets from women um, in all sorts of different places, whether it's on our oversight team or from the pulpit or... Pulpit. I know, from the pulpit. Pulpit! (laughs) From the teaching stool or uh, or wherever it might be. So that's an interesting question. And... uh, and, 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 you know, if, if we talked earlier about Phyllis Tickle and her comments, it's obvious that questions of gender are not going away. It's, it you know, needs to be talked not about. Not as long as women are women. That question won't go away. Because That's profound. Yeah. Okay, a couple other questions. Um, and these come to us from Facebook. Um, 
and, and, and let me just say, uh, thanks, guys, for these questions. <laughs> uh, uh, so our friend Wendy says this, asks this question. In the book, in the book Fundamentals, it mentions a point where you're giving a sermon about Noah and where you wanted to verbally question even the idea of a literal worldwide flood. Have there been times when even the idea of Christianity, the idea of God simply creating life inside Mary, etc., seems impossible, implausible? Um, and then our friend Matthew follows that up with a follow-up question. Yeah, corresponding to Wendy's question, have you ever wondered if any of it's true? God, the Trinity, Jesus, any of it? Okay, this is a safe place, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, the answer is yes. Yeah. The answer is there are absolutely times where it really feels like, like, what in the world are we doing? What in the world is this? I'm like, this seems so kind of strange and bizarre to think about and to believe um, that... um, and, and, and for me, it's less of like a, uh, it's less of a, um, like an intellectual doubt in the sense, because like, uh, you know, Pascal's wager and things like that, like, you know, make a lot of sense to me. And so like on a, in a logical kind of way, I have that sense of like, yeah, you know, um, it's a good bet. It's a good bet. Emotionally, there's times where it feels like, you know, it, it, my my emotional angst is not so much doesn't doesn't frequently lead me to there is no God. It more leads me to like what the hell is God doing? That kind of question. Like what is God thinking? How could God do that? Um, or or does he really? Is this really what he wants from us? I think I've had that question more than once. It's just you know. Is it really this is this is what he wants? I, I'm about to do something. You know. It's going to make people really upset with me. Is this really what he wants? Is it is is this worth doing? And and yet at the same time, um, there is uh, like I I have felt like an inherent ridiculousness in it all. It's, there are times where it's like, you know, why like this is a ridiculous way to live my life or to spend my life. Um, and those are, but you know, as I say that, those are not, um, those are not my predominant feelings. Those are not um, kind of where I I live and breathe. Um, but those are more like passing thoughts that I don't like. I'm not going to pretend that you know those those things have never popped into my head. Those questions have never occurred to me. I would never think to ask that mm-hmm. uh, because they absolutely have. Um, I, I think there's something. I think there's something very good, though, about just going ahead and asking that question. Um, there's a there's a very beloved story in Rob's family about his grandmother, who we never met, um, but apparently she was quite a character. And um, apparently she was riding in a plane, and she got off the plane. No, and no, 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 this is Grandma Valentine. You've met her. No, not Grandma Valentine. It was Grandma Valentine. Really? Yes. Get your story straight. It wasn't Grandma. Wasn't Grandma Ryerson? No, it was Grandma Valentine. Oh, I love Grandma Valentine. So she gets off the plane and she says, "I never put my weight down the whole time. I, I, I held, I held myself up in the seat the whole time." Which I just adore that because I can picture what it's like to sit there and not put your weight down in the chair. But what, what is holding you up? It's the plane. 
so go ahead and sit down in the seats. I think that's I think that's what it is to doubt your Christianity sometimes. Is sit down in the seat. Let the thing hold you up. Like go ahead and ask the questions. God's got broad shoulders. He doesn't mind. We were never told that. We were never told that God can handle your doubt. But but he can. And there's something really deeply reassuring like like when our kids ask us something that they've been like really worried about and we are able to, you know, comfort them. You know, they they feel so much more trust and I think when we when we ask God like we tell him, we admit what our real fears are and like how crazy we think it might all be. And I, I think he honors that. I think he realizes that if it if it wasn't real, we wouldn't even bother asking the question. If it was just a big joke and if it was just a big sham, we would just keep going along with the sham. Yeah, there's something um, counterintuitive that the doubt actually bolsters the faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is, again, something that I say in Fundamorphosis, that doubt is not the opposite of faith. They're not opposites. Uh, they can coexist. And uh, so I think for me, like, the thing that sustains me, the thing that, that, that propels me, even when I have, like, those thoughts that of, like, the ridiculousness of it all, uh, the thing that, that, that sustains me is uh, the fact that, like, I, the story resonates with me. Um, I find myself in the story, the story of Jesus and the story of, of, of redemption and the story of God's grace and God's love for us that, that, um, that the story that the Bible tells, it's a story that, that makes sense of my life in a way that no other story ever has. And, and, and that's like having my imagination captured by the story, by the gospel, like that's, that's faith. And that's the thing that sustains me. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, everybody, we want to thank you for listening in to the first ever Fundamorphosis podcast. Episode number one is in the books. Uh, Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, email us, and we will talk to you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.